you're going the wrong way. That's a phrase that probably gets most of our attention pretty quickly. Uh, after Carl Mumford's funeral in Marion, I was heading to the restaurant to have dinner with the family, and I made a wrong turn on Center Street, not realizing that I was going the wrong direction on a one-way street. I would have been glad for someone to tell me that I was going the wrong way in that situation uh, before I found myself face-to-face -face with another driver. Now, God graciously kept me from what could have been disastrous results from that uh, foolish mistake. But the Christian life often looks like that of a salmon who faces the resistance of swimming upstream. We don't take our direction from the world, but often we find ourselves going the opposite direction of our friends, our family members, our co-workers. In Proverbs chapter 2, we saw the importance of pursuing wisdom and avoiding foolishness in our scripture reading today. Now, wisdom doesn't just drop into our laps out of the sky. We must pursue it. And when we do, God promises to give us wisdom liberally and not hold back in James. But it takes effort on our part. We don't get it by remaining passive. Uh, Chuck Swindoll in his commentary on Ecclesiastes said this, Wisdom doesn't come easily. It may start with prayer, but there's so much more. To get wisdom, we must roll up our sleeves. Digging this for silver is hard work. It's like trying to find hidden treasure. It's very expensive and it takes rugged labor. Treasure, like wisdom, is not on the surface. We have to dig for it. I don't know if you noticed this, but as, as Brother Chris was reading Proverbs 2, there were some if-then statements. That means that some of these things, the results are conditional. And if you're ignoring God in some area of your life, Wisdom will likely evade you. If you refuse the counsel of the godly people around you, wisdom won't likely come in some other way. If you don't have a regular time in the word, take advantage of the opportunities to learn of Christ. Don't be surprised if you act in a foolish way at times. One nugget of wisdom we'll explore today is a principle taught throughout the word of God, that God is the one who puts in place those who are in authority. Now, one of the commentators said this, Solomon warned against criticizing governmental officials, even if their profligate, um, wasteful, extravagant leadership deserves such criticism. In this way, Solomon counseled submission to governmental authorities. And there are many examples in scripture where God puts certain rulers in authority as a punishment or chastisement of his people. I'll give you one such example. Isaiah chapter 3 and chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 and 12 says this. And I, this is God speaking through Isaiah the prophet, and I will make mere lads their princes and capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. O oh, my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who guide you lead you astray. 
And I'll note in particular this last part in, um, as it relates to our message today. It, they lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. Confuse the direction of your paths. What Isaiah predicted then is history to us on the other side. This prophecy, like all biblical prophecy, it came true. My question, though, is who put these leaders in authority? God did. Uh, By the way, the answer to that question is always God did. He is the one who sets up some and puts down others. Isaiah said, it's coming, but the people foolishly closed their ears and said, it won't come. Leave us alone. We're moving in the right direction. And when it came, precisely what Isaiah predicted occurred. They refused to listen to warnings and experience dreadful consequences. Uh, Last week, and and really throughout our study of Ecclesiastes, uh, we've been confronted with the idea of wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom and foolishness. Well, a lot of times we think of a fool as an immature prankster or like a practical joker of some sort. But the Bible's definition of a fool is one who lives as if God doesn't exist. Job 28, 28 says this, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to part from evil is understanding. Conversely, to run after evil, that's the Bible's idea of foolishness. Uh, Also in the Psalms, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We know from Romans that deep down, Everyone has a consciousness of God. Everyone knows that there is a God. Some people are just really good at at deceiving themselves. And as Romans 1.18 says, they put their hands over their ears and say, I don't want to hear that. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness is how it's termed in Romans chapter 1. But the reality is um, that that they they may be able to tell themselves a lie, but everyone knows that there is a God. If fools mock at sin. They treat wickedness like it's a sport. I don't know if you've noticed that as you've sort of watched our society. And it is the fool that suffers the most consequences for his sins. He's the one that ends up in prison. She is the one who trades her children for drugs or, or uh, the wrong boyfriend. They are the ones who suffer the most for their actions, but... Probably, as you've noticed, there is also collateral damage many times. The children who suffer a foolish parent's decisions. It's the wife that's constantly grieved at her husband's foolishness. We saw last time that the fool's own lips consumed them. So we talk about sort of the foolishness that we see all around us, but can Christians act foolishly? Well, the foolish life, the life of futility under the sun, isn't just avoiding worldliness in the sense of certain forms of entertainment or certain actions. Because Christians can be really good at that, but still worldly, because we think about this life without factoring God into the equation. When all we see is life under the sun, we too are being worldly and foolish. So as we begin today, I want us to consider In what areas of our lives might we be running from God and by extension running the wrong direction? Title of today's message is The Wrong Direction. And so let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 15 through 20. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 15 through 20. Ecclesiastes 10, beginning in verse 15. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, verse 20, furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Let's ask God's blessing one more time on our passage today. Father, we need your wisdom, we need your help. Lord, to understand the truth of your word, which the natural man does not receive, we need your illumination, your spirit to teach us today. And I pray that none of us would be able to escape the convicting power of your word today as we hear it come to bear in our hearts and lives, that we all would be willing to hear and to change in the areas where you show us we need to change. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Point number one this morning from verse 15. The fool has no sense of direction. The fool has no sense of direction. Look again at verse 15. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he doesn't even know how to go to a city. The fool's wearying effort, or we might think of this as travail. Uh, The word fool, we've explored this many times. It's the stupid one or the silly one. Again, we don't go around calling people fools, and yet scripture doesn't have that restriction. It calls a fool a fool. And his toil causes him to, to gasp. It, it exhausts him. That's the idea of this word, wearies him. So because of the way he goes about life, everyday tasks weary him, and he has no capacity for spiritual things. He doesn't have a sense of direction even to know how to go to a city. He doesn't perceive how to travel to his destination. He doesn't recognize the way to walk. He doesn't know the way to San Jose or any other city. It's been suggested that the fool not being able to find his way to the city was an ancient proverb about foolishness. This fool gets lost on even the straightest courses of life takes a special kind of foolishness and work to get lost on the way to the city. We might say something along the lines of, they don't have enough sense to come out of the rain. We smile sometimes when we see a child try to do a a task, and we know that there's an easier way to do it. Our hope, of course, is that they'll figure it out, and they'll get satisfaction of, of learning something, doing something well. And this can be a, a joy to watch in a child, but it's sad when it's a fool who not only has never learned, but also refuses to listen still. It's as if sometimes people find the most difficult way to do a thing, and then they try to do it that way. Finding the entrance to a great city, one that is well marked and not intended to be hidden, seems like it should be an obvious path, impossible to miss. But they lack direction. 
incompetent in the most basic of tasks. And so their labor is more wearying than others, for at the very least, because they, they lack that sense to make difficult tasks easier. There are certain things that help us to work smarter, not harder. But the fool being described has no concept of these sort of fundamentals. They're also incompetent in spiritual things because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and they lack that. And so if that person can't find his or her way to a well-marked earthly city, how in the world are they going to find their way to the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem? Warren Wiersbe writes, the fool boasts about his future plans. Of course, this dips back into our verses from last week. The fool boasts about his future plans and wearies people with his talk, but he can't even find his way to the city. So busy talking about the future, he gets lost in the present. And so fools lack direction. Now, secondly, point number two from verses 16 and 17, we see the foolish ruler leads without a lack of direction, or sorry, with a lack of direction. The foolish ruler leads with a lack of direction from verses 16 and 17 of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And we see specifically in verse 16, the foolish rulers who lack discipline, who lack discipline. Now, amazingly, um, as I've studied this, I believe this to be so. For the remainder of this passage, Solomon provides a series of proverbs describing the negative impact of wasteful and foolish leadership on a nation. And then he warns against criticizing such poor leaders. So he starts here by saying, Woe or alas to you, O land, whose king is a lad. Land here speaks of a nation on this earth. The king is the royal He's the one in charge. And he's talking about an, an adolescent, a babe who's in charge. The king being a lad must be calculated more than simply by age. Because some of the best times of Judah were experienced when they had a young king. Solomon was young when the kingdom prospered, for example it's more likely that what we're referring to here isn't necessarily biological age, but maturity. He's childish. He behaves like a child, a little child. And then he says, whose princes feast in the morning. This word princes can mean uh, captains or masters. They, they feast or they consume at dawn. Uh, the governors who eat at the break of dawn. Now, this doesn't mean we should never have breakfast, obviously. Even a breakfast buffet from time to time is proper. But probably not shouldn't be the normal course of life. Morning is the usual time for justice to be dispensed in the east. But these rulers were busy feasting, feasting. And so in verse 17, we're introduced to the wise rulers who do not lack discipline. He says, blessed or happy are you, O land, whose king is of nobility. Now this Hebrew word translated nobility, it speaks of cleansing and purity. Nobility is likened to the white hot of a fire. These 
princes of nobility, they know how to eat at the appropriate time, at the right time. Their eating doesn't get in the way of doing their duty, which is necessary for them to lead well for the benefit of the people that they're leading. And for the appropriate reason, Solomon goes on, for strength, not drunkenness, for power, not, not intoxication, for might, not to indulge themselves. Even something as mundane as eating is seen as an opportunity to fit the body for better service. Matthew Henry wrote this, the people cannot be but be happy when their rulers are generous and active, sober and temperate, and men of business. Isaiah 5.11 says this, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening, that wine may inflame them. Proverbs 31.4 says this, It is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire strong drink. The noble leaders are prepared, and they don't let their desires get in the way of leading well. Some desirable qualities in leaders are these, wisdom, virtue, God-fearing, benevolent, uh, meaning good to others, uh, a desire to do good to all under their charge. And this certainly translates into the characteristics of men who qualify to be elders in the church as well, where spiritual maturity is a necessity. What a dangerous thing to thrust someone into leadership too soon, or one who is not qualified. By the way, these are the qualities you should aspire to, men, especially if you wanted to be a leader in any area of life. Solomon describes both. He he describes incompetent leaders who are intemperate. They feast in the morning, and we might say they party all day. Their life can be described by revelry and drunkenness. They're wasteful and extravagant. On the other hand, the right kind of leaders, the noble ones, are temperate. Matthew Henry writes, It is well with the people when those that have most to spend upon themselves know how to deny to deny themselves. Uh, actually, in our discipleship class, we did a chapter on self-control. Fit right along with this. Let me read that to you again. It is, it is well with the people when those that have most to spend upon themselves know how to deny themselves. And it's been said, as the leaders go, so goes the nation. It's the people that suffer from poor leaders, and it is the people that benefit from good leadership. Good leadership seeks to build up those around them and make them builders also, while poor leadership wants to build its own kingdom and protect its authority by keeping others down. The nation whose leaders are incompetent and undisciplined is contrasted with the blessing of a nation whose leaders are competent and disciplined. And yet, both of those scenarios come from God, as we saw in Isaiah and many other places in Scripture, because God is the one who puts down in authority those who are in authority. When we get to verse 18, we see point number three today. That is that the fool's property goes the wrong direction. The fool's property goes the wrong direction. Through indolence, 
the rafters sag. The leaders are so busy having a good time that the building and the organization starts to fall apart all around them. Some continue, some, uh, continue on the theme of the ruler and apply this to the kingdom of a lazy monarch, and I find this very compelling. This, these incompetent leaders, then, are the lazy ones, and whatever they rule over suffers because of it. Things that need to be maintained are not maintained, leading to leaky roofs and a lack of protection of the land. And so even if that's Solomon's intent, that he's really referring to uh, just these, these leaders that he spoke of in the previous verse, there surely is application for us in this as well. Indolence is the idea of slothfulness or laziness. Not a little, he talks about much slothfulness. It's literally sloth in both hands is literally the, the word that's used here. In that, the rafters sag, or this word sag can actually mean they perish. The building decays. The frame is brought low. And then through slackness, the house leaks. Um, the Greek word used here uh, for slackness means work of the hands. There's no work of the hands. It's idleness of the hands. And so water drips or pours through the roof as a result. It's a obvious, predictable result of that. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 24. We'll see that the life of the fool, as described in Proverbs chapter 24, is instructive to the wise. It's instructive to the wise. Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 30. And this is, this is why both Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs are, are both described as wisdom literature because it's laying out what does wisdom look like as opposed to other things like foolishness. Proverbs 24, verse 30. I pass by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. See, he's, he's trying to learn from these things. He's learning from what he sees in this world. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber, and your want like an armed man. So the life of a fool is instructive to the wise. When the property is not taken care of and problems aren't repaired but ignored, rain is going to get in. Wood will rot. Eventually, mold is going to become a problem, and soon the house won't even be livable anymore. What is needed is attention and a little bit of preventative maintenance. The house here can be symbolic of any structural, structured organization. This foresight and maintenance is required in any organization, whether it's a family or a nation or a business or a church body. I have a vice president that I worked for at Chase Bank who said something that stuck with me for about 20 years now. It was 2004 that I worked there. He said, problems don't age well. Problems don't age well. 
Ignoring problems isn't going to end well. It will lead to ruin. Warren Wearsby writes, immature people enjoy the privileges and ignore the responsibilities, while mature people see the responsibilities as privileges and use them to help others. So even as we entertain the possibility of uh, joining together, we must realize that there is work to be done. There are many things that need to be accomplished, and we can't afford uh, laziness or passivity. We need a whole host of workers doing the many tasks that are in front of us. Point number four today, from verse 19, the fool lacks the right priorities. The fool lacks the right priorities. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 19, excuse me. Point number four. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Uh, men prepare a meal for enjoyment. The word meal here, it's the word for food. It can mean bread, it can mean meat. Many translations have the word feast here. They prepare a feast for enjoyment, for laughter, for merriment. They eat not for strength, but to gratify their selfish desires. And then he starts talking about wine. This word can mean banqueting, makes life merry. Now, from our study, we know that Solomon had unsuccessfully tried to use wine for satisfaction. In Ecclesiastes 2.3, remember he said, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. And after that, remember he concluded at the end of chapter 2, all of it was striving after wind grasping at the wind. Has anyone ever been able to get any wind in your hand as you tried to grab it? No. It's a useless exercise. And yet there are places in scripture that say that wine cheers men. For example, Judges chapter 9, verse 13. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and, and go to wave over the trees? Psalm 104, 15 says this, and wine makes, which makes men's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. And so I think, again, I'll just remind, remind us that the big, big rub here, the important component when you see verses about wine in scripture is understanding that the wine that was used in that day is very different than the wine you would get at a liquor store today because as some rabbis wrote it was watered down by four, five, and sometimes even twenty parts water how much of that would you have to drink to actually get drunk and so um Certainly, in Scripture, it does says that, say that there's value for wine, and the fact that it was the normal drinking uh, liquid of the day, and yet in our day, it'd be hard to find a wine that wouldn't make you drunk. And so while I couldn't say that, that um, drinking wine is forbidden in Scripture, certainly drunkenness is, and I think in our, in our culture, it's very difficult. It would be very difficult to bridge that gap, as it were. That's probably conversation for another time but as we as we go through scripture uh, wine it's, it's said to brighten one's life but these leaders are using it for t intoxication 
not to drink to quench their thirst. And then money, or silver is the word literally, is the answer to everything. Answers to everything, the whole shebang. Every situation, he's saying, can be made better by money. Well, rather than a positive statement about food, wine, and money, another idea, which I think seems more likely based on the context, is the fact that these leaders think that money can be the answer for all of their shortcomings. Now, others think it has to do with when leaders get in trouble, what's the first thing they do? Uh, Well, their answer is to get more money. How does one do that? Well, they raise taxes, of course. But money, money, while it can be used to buy things in this world, it can't buy anything of spiritual value. It can't pardon sin or earn God's favor or give us peace or comforts. In the time of the Reformation, through indulgences, the the Catholic Church was trying to sell religion. That's one of the things Martin Luther, of course, strongly opposed. The selling of getting the people's loved ones out of purgatory, as it were. It's not that money has no value, obviously. Uh, Solomon earlier in Ecclesiastes 7.12 said this, For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. And so about these leaders, the Bible Knowledge Commentary describes how their their, uh, feasting and merrymaking depletes state funds. Uh, John MacArthur says this, the partying king of verse 18 thinks he can fix all the disasters of his inept reign by raising taxes. Money might seem like the answer to everything, but in the end, we can conclude with Solomon that it never satisfies. That was a conclusion Solomon made in chapter 5, verse 10, when he said this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. So we can conclude here that selfish leaders try to squeeze all they can out of others. They're indifferent to the responsibility to serve others. I like what one commentator gave the idea of uh, of those who are in uh, sort of political or government leadership. He said, a statesman asks, what's best for my country? A politician asks, what's best for my party? But someone who is just holding an office asks, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And so as we look at verse 19, we see, and throughout this passage, we see that there's so much to criticize about these rulers. But rather than doing so, we must leave them in the hands of God who judges all things perfectly at the last judgment. Because we have to fit into our theology verse 20 here. And in verse 20, we see point number five, that the fool lacks direction in discretion. The fool lacks direction in discretion. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. And in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound and the winged creature will make the matter known. How many of you have heard the expression, a little birdie told me? Probably has come from Ecclesiastes, that expression. A little birdie told me. 
And there's so much to criticize, right? But Solomon finishes by saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Even if we have a difficult time respecting the one in office, we must respect the office and not publicly or privately criticize them. He says, do not curse the king in your bedchamber. Now, all of the other translations that I consulted didn't have the word bedchamber, had the idea of thoughts instead. The idea is that we're conscious of what is in our hearts And we should guard against reviling government authorities even in our own thoughts, though they may deserve it. The word curse, the idea is make light of the king, the royal, bring into contempt the one in charge, lightly esteem the one in a position of honor. Exodus chapter 22 verse 28 says this, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Can I provide a logical restatement of this verse for you this morning? Don't curse God or the one in authority who, by the way, God put there. That's a logical restatement of that verse. Is there a difference between cursing God and cursing the one who may be over you in authority, but still under God. In the book of Acts, Paul had some strong language for the high priest Ananias until he learned about his position. Turn to Acts chapter 23 with me. chapter 23, beginning in verse 3. Acts 23, 3 says this, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law, and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So let me ask you, was the action of the high priest suddenly justified? No. No, it surely wasn't. And yet Paul walked back his response to the one in the position of authority, and he did so by quoting that verse in Exodus chapter 22. So do not curse a ruler in your thoughts, in your bedchamber. I believe thoughts would be the better interpretation here. And now secondly, in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. Uh, The sleeping rooms here are parlors. It speaks of the innermost parts of the home. The rich are are those who, uh, the word can mean nobility. So he had warned against reviling a government authority in our thoughts. Now he warns us not to curse a rich man, even in the most private place of our home, the bedroom. These things arise in the most secret places in our hearts. Because a bird of the heavens 
will carry the sound. One that flies in the air will carry your voice. This winged creature is going to make the matter known. Uh, the word matter here means 